The Clone Podcast. Change your way. Welcome to The Quo Podcast. I'm Ali. Professor Catherine Kevin is an academic at Flinders University, specialising in Australian and feminist histories and the politics and experience of the reproductive body. She is a founding member of the South Australian Abortion Action Coalition, a group that has campaigned since 2015 to decriminalise abortion in South Australia and to achieve access to affordable abortions for all, regardless of an individual's location. On March the 2nd this year, the Termination of Pregnancy Bill was passed, which made South Australia the final state to decriminalise abortion. As a long-term advocate in this area, how did you feel having this milestone achieved? It was pretty fantastic, Ali. Um, you know, the campaign in South Australia, this campaign, and it's not the first campaign um, to be tried, has been going for five years. And um, it was really wonderful to have the bill finally passed by both parliaments. It's not the perfect bill, but it's definitely a bill that we can live with. Um, and we did sit through some pretty unedifying parliamentary debate. But in the end, I think the amendments that were passed um, are amendments that we can work with. So, you know, our job is not yet done, but this does open a way for much more equitably accessible abortion care in South Australia. Couldn't you speak a little about the amendments that, that were made and why you feel they were problematic? The law has now changed so that up until 22 weeks and six days, an abortion patient doesn't need to um, explain their reasons for having an abortion. And unlike previously, they are the person who will be consenting to the procedure. Previously, two doctors had to assess an, a patient's need for an abortion and sign off on, on that abortion in order for the abortion to lawfully take place. Our campaign was always to make abortion care health care, just to remove it from the Crimes Consolidation Act completely and to um, allow it to be regulated like any other form of health care. You know, abortion will not be delivered in a policy or regulatory vacuum. All of our healthcare procedures, as you know, um, require you know informed consent, um, and they are delivered in the context of a framework that seeks to ensure quality of care, um, that seeks to be respectful to patients and healthcare providers. All of those things that we value in a in a good healthcare system, abortion will be delivered in that same context. So as far as our campaign was concerned, we didn't, uh, we argued that there was no need for any extra regulation that would exceptionalise abortion as a form of healthcare. So um, the amendments that have gone into the um, the law that will, that will, when it's passed, that, that are in the bill, um, sorry, has been passed, sorry, when it becomes implemented, um, they are really, I, I think, arguably very unnecessary. You kept on talking about our campaign, so I'd love to uh, talk a little bit about the organisation you're a part of, South Australian Abortion Action Coalition. Can you tell me about your work with them, their work, um, and what they do to help improve 
access to abortion in South Australia, especially in rural areas? Our group began, uh, well, the prelude to the group was a flash mob in, uh, I think, about 2013. <laughs> there was a national uh, movement then that was um, started by Reproductive Choice Australia in Melbourne. And um, so there were flash mobs all around the country um, that were about ending the stigma of abortion, basically. Um, so a bunch of us got together and we danced on North Terrace to Florence and the Machine. Um, and it was, we all wore T-shirts saying, end the stigma. Um, it was fabulous fun. Um, not too long after that, maybe I think about a year or so, after, maybe a bit more than that, yeah, there was a conference um, which brought together practitioners and um, scholars of abortion in South Australia. And then soon after that, so in 2015, the South Australian Abortion Action Coalition was formed. And I suppose the core group um, at that starting point had done the flash mob, had been part of the conference, and then decided, right, now is the time to start our campaign to change the law. We knew from the start that it was not gonna happen quickly. In fact, um, one of our conveners said just on Friday night when we had our big big celebration of, of the, the change that she had always thought it would take five years and it took almost exactly five years. Now that the termination of pregnancy bill has been passed, is your focus focusing, is it more to do with rural um, people in rural areas accessing abortions? Is, is that your current focus? Yeah, well, look, I have to admit we haven't started that work yet, but we're all kind of talking about what the next step is. Um, I suppose what we're acutely aware of, Ali, is that there is always a gap between the law and what happens on the ground. And one of the things that I haven't mentioned is that in South Australia, our abortion services are free. And that's not true of any other state or territory in this country. Mm. Um, and so, you know, not only is there a very uh, high quality, dedicated uh, centre for providing abortion services in Adelaide, where there is low staff turnover, it's a kind of national centre for training doctors and nurses and social workers in this space. It really is a kind of best practice model um, if we look nationally at all the services, I think our service really stands out. Um, not only is it a great service, but it's free. It is yeah. paid for um, by the public health system. In other states and territories where the law changed quite a while ago, that's not the case. So while South Australia has been the last place to decriminalise, um, in you know cities like Melbourne and Sydney, you can pay a lot of money to get access to your abortion. And in places like uh, Tasmania, women have had to travel to the mainland in order to get access to an abortion, and they've had to do it at a huge expense. Mm. So um, there's always, you know, there is so often this gap between the law and actually people's experiences. So Kath, mm -hmm. there's a strong intersection between your research as a historian and your advocacy work. Uh, you wrote about in 2014, Fred Nile's Christian Democratic Party proposed a new bill called Zoe's Law to give legal personhood to a fetus. So what were the possible implications of this law in terms of access to legal abortions? The thing about um, discourses of abortion is that um, those who oppose 
access to abortion have, broadly speaking, two strategies. One strategy, and perhaps the oldest strategy, is um, to emphasise the value of the fetus and to portray the fetus as a child so that abortion can be then uh, understood as a form of murder. The other, uh, the other strategy that they have is to say that abortion is very bad for women. Yeah, so those are the, the two strategies. Now, it's bad for women, it's, it's unsafe for them psychologically and also physically. So I have um, been interested in the history of miscarriage and I think it's always really important to think about things like miscarriage and abortion um, historically because I think the meaning of these uh, acts and these experiences is always socially and politically and culturally and therefore historically contingent. Prior to um, abortion becoming lawful, you know, we know that many women um, sought abortions, lost their lives, mm. were very badly injured by them. But many women also successfully sought abortions or performed abortions on themselves, and this is how they managed their fertility. In the age of sort of liberalisation of abortion laws, we get this growing focus and capacity to sort of visualise in a very detailed way what the fetus is how it's growing, we discover the sex of the fetus, we start to think about, you know, all the ways in which we might plan in response to the features of the fetus, you know, there's, and, and I mean, it just gets a whole lot more, um, uh, our conceptualisations become increasingly detailed. So I think that that has given the anti-abortion movement a great deal of um, ammunition. Of course, I, you know, it, it's complicated. Like we're in a period where um, risky pregnancies, risky wanted pregnancies can be much more easily protected, where premature babies can survive and give, you know, parents a great deal of joy. So it's not obviously these things are, are both good and bad. Um, but I think that all of that uh, sort of elaboration of the fetus through these technologies and through the intensification of antenatal care has also um, fed into a discourse around the value of the fetus. What Zoe's law sought to do was to invest the fetus with legal subjecthood so that the fetus could be treated as a separate um, subject of the law. Now, the risk there is that you could have two competing legal subjects. So, in the case of the loss of Zoe to her mother, Brodie Donegan, at 32 weeks, it's a very tragic set of circumstances. And of course, you know, um, along with, with thousands of other people, I felt an incredible uh, sympathy for for Zoe's um, mother Brodie. It was a very tragic um, uh, event in her life. But you know what the law, of course, does is it creates a set of definitions that can be applied in a whole range of circumstances. Now, in Australia, the fetus has always been you know that has not had legal personhood. Legal personhood begins at birth. And that's, that has, has made Australian law distinct from, say, US law for a very long time. And Zoe's law, had it passed, would have changed that. 
your research also focuses on reproductive coercion. Can you explain mm. what reproductive coercion is? Look, reproductive coercion is actually, um, particularly in the, Australia, in the Australian context, is a fairly new uh, idea. And it's something that there is currently a debate about um, whether or not reproduct whether or not actually coercion or coerced control should be incorporated into legal definitions of um, you know domestic and family violence or domestic and family abuse. Reproductive coercion is part of that coercion, coercive control. That's not the end of the story, though. So in, in my mind, there are two forms of reproductive coercion. On one hand, you have reproductive coercion in intimate relationships, um, but it can also occur, say, in extended families. So, it, you know, reproductive coercion can be perpetrated by um, parents and um, parents-in-law, for example, or a partner's parent, but also, of course, an intimate partner. Um, so what we're talking about there is basically interfering in a pregnant person's agency about the outcome of their pregnancy or indeed um, interfering in, a, uh, in a, a sexually active person's um, capacity to control their fertility. So uh, an example would be um, an intimate partner refusing to allow um, somebody to have access to contraception or perhaps taking a condom off at the last minute um, or refusing to allow an intimate partner to have access to an abortion or it could mean forcing somebody to have an abortion. But I'm also interested in the way that we could argue the state perpetrates reproductive coercion. Mm. And one particular example that I've written about um, in the case of asylum seekers and refugee women in Nauru. Um, and there was a case particularly of um, a woman called Abiyan, or that was, that was the name she was given by the press, that was a pseudonym, um, who in 2014 was living on Nauru. She was actually, uh, she'd been found to be a refugee, so she was no longer living in detention, but she was living in Australian government-sponsored housing on the island of Nauru in the community. And Abian had allegedly been raped. Um, she was from Somalia and she had lost her family during civil conflict. And uh, she indicated, I think, that she had um, experienced sexual violence before she left Somalia. And then she uh, arrived at Christmas Island. She had come probably via Indonesia, I think, um, and was sent straight to Nauru. She spent some time in detention. She was found to be a genuine refu refugee. That was when she was living in the community that she was raped. She became pregnant and um, she had been uh, according to her lawyer, she had been begging the authorities to allow her to go to the mainland to access an abortion because it is illegal to have an abortion on the island of Nauru. Um, and eventually she did go to Sydney to access that abortion. Um, and she was there for a very short period of time and was sent back to Nauru without actually getting the abortion. And the um, Australian government represented the story as her having just changed her mind. She got to 
to the to, to, to uh, Sydney and she decided actually I don't really want to have this abortion after all. Now she wrote a letter which was um, then uh, given to the media by her um, lawyer which actually described why she had not had that abortion which was because she wanted some counselling, she wanted a translator, um, she wanted to get some proper care, she wanted to feel like she was having this termination in the context of appropriate care for her where she would understand what she was agreeing to and she would understand what the procedure entailed. And while she, she was making those demands, she was waiting for something to happen, none of that materialised and then she was put on a plane and sent back to Nauru. So um, I found this case very distressing and concerning, um, particularly because I had also been reading about women who had been taken under armed guard from Nauru to Melbourne. Um, and there's a social work academic called Liz Hayes, who's also worked in abortion services, and she has published on, on on this particular cohort of patients who were coming and her her work argues they were coming very frequently, you know, from Nauru to Melbourne to have abortions. You know, but, but the reason why Abiyan couldn't get access to abortion like those other women were in, in frequent numbers or in high numbers was because in the interim between that cohort and Abiyan, there had been three women who had sought injunctions to stay in Australia when they'd come to the mainland for their abortion. So the government just cancelled all access. So I just thought this was very interesting in terms of where the Australian government's investments were. They weren't invested in the women in Nauru having their babies because they were just, you know, a more, more resource-intensive population. Mm. Um, and... Uh, but but at the same time, they then weren't prepared to take the risk of those women seeking injunctions to stay in Australia. So they weren't prepared to give women the reproductive freedom, delimited by their context, um, that they were seeking through abortion if it risked um, them seeking an injunction to stay on the Australian mainland. Given that Australia has now decriminalised abortion in every state, what do you think some of the most pressing issues around reproductive health are? It would be great if we could get more public health support for abortion services. So I think that we need to uh, go back to the Labor Party's policy that they took to the last election, which was to um, provide public health provision of abortion in every jurisdiction. Um, I think that would be fantastic. I also think we need to um, increase medical professionals' awareness of abortion and increase the provision of training for medical professionals as well because um, a lot of doctors go through their degrees without really learning very much about abortion at all, let alone considering that this might be part of their kind of healthcare repertoire. I think it's really important that doctors understand what early, early medication abortion is, so that even if they don't want to be involved in providing surgical abortion, um, particularly GPs, understand that there is um, this medication that people can take up to nine weeks in pregnancy. It's very safe, but they need to do a very short online um, training 
course in order to become prescribers and that, that this I think if if there was more awareness of that and we could get more doctors on board for that then um, that would really enhance people's access to abortion I also think that um, in relation to abortion um, I suppose enabling more healthcare professionals who are not necessarily uh, doctors uh, to be able to also um, provide early medication abortion with, you know, those who are adequately trained. I don't see why, for example, clinical nurses couldn't be trained to provide early medication abortion. And for people, especially people living in remote Australia, I think that would really make a big difference to their access. So creating as much free uh, abortion provision as possible and also increasing the capacity of healthcare services um, in terms of personnel to provide quality abortion care. I think there is still a stigma attached to abortion. I think we really need to work on that as a culture. I think decriminalisation is a huge step towards removing the stigma, but I think there's more work to do. It needs to be part of sex education. It needs to be normalised. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today, Kath. My pleasure. I've enjoyed it. Thanks, Sally.